nothing comes easy when you especially when you run your own business it's 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 sometimes very hard and it's sometimes challenging and it's sometimes a bit demoralizing so one of the biggest challenges is managing expectations not just client expectations but also people expectations your staff's expectation and so the way i try to encourage equal opportunity and equal pay and all these things and benefits and even though we are a small and young business we try to the goal is to do it well and the goal is to do it well for everyone Welcome to the Light Lounge the first podcast for lighting designers creatives and designers who work with light My name is Thomas Mnich. I'm a lighting designer in New York City. Welcome back, everyone, to this week's Light Lounge. Today, I speak with Claudia Kappel-Joy, founder of CLL, Concept Lighting Lab. Claudia has basically traveled all over the world. She is originally from Austria, but she has worked and lived in the UK and Sweden and is now centered in the desert heat of Tucson, Arizona, in the US. To get to know what it is about to work with ice and light in Sweden and now with the sand and heat in the desert, we met at the Eric Firestone Gallery in New York City to have our fantastic conversation. I'm very excited that her collected experiences and her knowledge as an architect and lighting designer has set her focus of, of her practice in atmosphere and space making. And I'm very excited to hear that her focus and starting point of every project is a daylight analysis. And as always, we start from the beginning. And in today's show, we start in Austria with Claudia Kappel-Joy. Please enjoy. I grew up in a small town in Austria, kind of rural environment, really picturesque, beautiful. What, what is the name? Spital an der Drau. Perfect. Th that's what I was looking for, for the beautiful <laughs> accent, yes. <laughs> well, I, ca I, can't, I can't ever get rid of that one, uh, as much as I try. Um, yeah, so I grew up in this very central European environment, surrounded by lakes and mountains and seasons and a lot of culture and music and history and, and all that, but uh, coming from a small town, you kind of try to expand your horizon, especially um, with my family. My mother's huge fan of culture and music. My dad was traveling a lot all his life and has brought back impressions from all over India and Asia. Mm. And so we were exposed to this a lot as kids. and. Did you like, travel as well as kids with your family? Um, we did, but more locally and really getting intricate understanding of our local immediate environment. Mm -hmm. um, and then when I grew up to an age where I could travel myself, I would kind of try to do as much as I could. And then um, through my studies, I really traveled a lot to quite exotic places and could get some influence and then try to eventually live in these places to get a better understanding and have lived then in the UK. Have, uh, after my studies, then moved to Sweden and from there I kind of... What are exotic um, places? Well, or exotic, I don't know if I should say exotic, but at that time it seemed exotic. Um, we went to Egypt and spent really like weeks on ends in that environment and kind of visited historically relevant um, spaces that were all filled with mass and light and kind of really 
beautiful and and sure um how should i say just impressive yeah really really impressive leaving a big impact that you probably just understand after time it comes back to you and you kind of like resonate on these things yeah yeah was were sort of the local travels then sort of an inspiration to go into architecture um well I sometimes wonder about this of like what really brought me to architecture in the first place because my family mostly comes from medicine. My dad had been a machine engineer. Um, but my uncle was huge into architecture. And so when we grew up, we would help my parents build a big city house or not a house, like more like, um, what do you, what do you call that? It's a multi. No, <laughs> it's it's uh, very centrally located in the small town, opposite to the castle. So it's a very prominent location, and it's Europe, of course, castles. It, yeah, so it's a multi-story apartment building slash commercial mm -hmm. um, property, and we helped build it when we were kids. I mean, we would really we would carry breaks. We would be very involved physically and put hands on and so that kind of kept always be a part of it it's like you you very actively um get involved and so we did with broader family um help over summer times just expand homes build with your hands so maybe that was one of the draws to go into architecture um and that yeah i don't know probably just fascinated in the making process at first and then the more education uh, brought me to it through the studies in architecture in Graz the University of Technology mm -hmm. in Graz um, there was perhaps more towards an, an more abstract thinking abstract space making that has a broader reach a cultural reach um, and Graz it in itself is a very, very interesting place because it has one of the most intact Baroccan city cores after, after the wars. But then it is juxtaposed with this hyper-contemporary experimental architecture. So it's this really interesting, interesting. juxtaposition yeah. that creates this interesting tension of the old and new. And it's not fake architecture. It's not, or it's not fake historic historic architecture mm -hmm. or trying to match it but it's actually juxtaposing it with something that is of today's day right. and age and so through that there was a lot of very interesting discourse and dialogue which surely um, influenced my way of thinking a lot. It, it sounds like that you are also very deeply rooted in architecture or that you feel home in architecture where do you feel more home in architecture or in light in light well I should say my approach to light is space making. So the main goal and what brought me towards light is atmospheric space. So it's, it's, it's about the space making, it's about the mood, it's about the creation of an overall. So light in itself, as we know, does not really occur. And light in space uh, creating a harmonic or sometimes maybe provocative or tension creating yeah. alerting environment is is the interesting aspect 
light in itself, light as an object, probably does not interest me as much as light as a space maker, as a as a co-creator. Yeah. As a yeah. As a, a yeah. As an artist. As, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> right. So so in that sense, um, I probably have a slightly different attitude towards lighting than what you sometimes hear from lighting designers who are very immersed in the uh, in the medium of light as the main Source. protagonist. Yeah. I think light is mm. is hugely important and it's. It's fundamental, which is why I chose to go after an additional education to learn about it, how to use it, because if you can control it, you're truly able to make space yeah. or influence space. Was it also taught at Graz that light was an important part or did you... No, it wasn't. So I, I keep telling the guys in the office and they, they smile at it. Um, It was probably the most boring class I ever visited. We had to take lighting as a course, but it was taught as physics by a guy in a lab coat, yeah. um, putting up mathematic formulas on, on a chalkboard. And it was, it was not very inspiring. And then once I was brought, but once I figured through my thesis project uh, and for when graduating from architecture in grads, I, We had the opportunity to go after a thesis uh, to really develop our own theme. I chose whiteness as my theme. And then that brought me to Sweden, trying to articulate an experience in white. And there I realized I don't know anything about light. And it's one of the most crucial elements to actually make the space that I'm interested in. Why Sweden? When I was a teenager in the in the gymnasium or high school I attended, we had exchange programs. One program would go to Italy, the other program would go to Scandinavia. Mm -hmm. I chose to go to Scandinavia because I traveled Italy before, multiple times. Done that, seen I, that. Well, but it's also very close. I mean, my hometown is three hours from Venice and yeah. we would go multiple times in summer. Um, or go to the beach or whatnot. But Sweden seemed very exciting and so when I was 16 um, I traveled there I had one of the most amazing experiences I came back and I said to my mother okay if I had a choice a second home country it would be Sweden and she's like okay you will be living in Sweden one day what was the and experience so it was just um, we were taken to Karlstad which is a small town um, in the lake in the middle south mid Sweden mm -hmm. um, close to the big lakes and um, we just spend a lot of time there with students same age exchanges hikes being in the culture traveling with with peers of our age and just learning to be immersed in their influences and I was very very inspiring so why the uh The closeness also to winter and snow is not correct, my assumption here. Um, perhaps. I mean, I love winter, which makes it so interesting that I choose to live in one of the hottest places you can choose to live in with very little snow. I do love snow. Um, and I'm, I'm really enamored with, with white and green or with, with forests and... 
nature at and large. Nature at large, but um, yeah, I'm not sure what it what it really is about the Swedish culture that has such a big resonance. It just feels. I think it's amazing. Feels right. <laughs> it's yeah. Yeah. Uh, and then did you look specifically for different programs where you can study light in your in your masters or did yeah so that uh, and sorry to interrupt here but it's like so what's what was interesting when i when i decided to go after this white experience and i i managed to go to sweden i had some friends in sweden um at that time already and and had some contacts and and references but When I um, decided to go try to realize the white experience, I reached out to Isotel and I said I'd really be interested in doing this project. And so it occurs, it just occurred to me, snow would be the ideal material to manifest itself or to show what whiteness is all about because it's an inherently white material. It's, yeah. not, it's not paint, it's not an applique, it is, it is white and it is structure and it is integral to its material properties. So would it be possible for me to work with snow? Would it be possible for me to realize this white experience in your environment? And they allowed me to come to Sweden, but in order to get this all working through the university context, I had to have a relationship to the university in Stockholm, which brought me in connection with Jan Ahead And then through that contact and then eventually thanking him after I managed to finish the project and, um, you know, just really thanked him for the connect, for his co-signing so that I could maybe right. uh, work this out. He then reached out and said, like, oh, what a beautiful project. Congratulations. By the way, um, We Why are, are we, you not here? We are having this daylight course. We are having this electrical lighting course. Are you at all interested? We happen to have a seat open. And so within a week, I found myself on a flight to Sweden. And I didn't, <laughs> I didn't come back. Uh, um, for a long time. For a long time, right. Before we go into sort of the KTH, mm -hmm. um, give a little bit more context to the, the project. You, so you mentioned you reached out to the ICE Hotel. ICE Hotel is, I think, like, like light of a... Like, I'm using probably the wrong words, like an iglo, and iglo is probably not the correct description anymore, but what... So, okay, um, ICE Hotel... You don't where, have to go... Where, where to, to start. So, yeah. so ICE Hotel is known for its brand. ICE Hotel is... Is a hotel concept uh, that's located in Yukosiarev. It's 200 kilometers north of the polar circles. So it's wow. far north, even north of Kiruna, which you might have heard, north of the polar circles, meaning that the sun does not rise above the horizon after a specific um, period in wintertime. Ice Hotel is known specifically for its ice and the ice comes from a river called the Torna Elv. It has this very consistent flow of water that pushes the air bubbles slowly when the ice starts to build in wintertime. And what that makes is for an incredibly clear ice that you can cut in blocks of one by two meters. And it is so clear that you can see through this full mass of ice and it's, it's stunning. 
Um, so that made for the brand quality eyes that now can be seen on, in fashion shows. It can be seen all over the world. They are pretty much bringing and exporting the eyes to Japan and to other big events. But um, it also was initially created by this group of architects, artists who happened to find themselves in that environment, who once were stuck in this really cold climate. And what they actually did is they dug themselves an igloo, which is the best insulator against the cold because it is the snow that is insulating. And so from that, the idea was born to create a hotel that would allow you to sleep in that environment have that experience of being in this extreme cold of minus 30 degrees in wintertime and then come into the igloo and you have minus five, but it feels so warm because Crazy. of the temperature the difference. difference. And, and so from that, an idea was born to create this, con this concept of Ice Hotel that then has been a concept that kind of happens again and again. Every year they rebuild it. And two years ago, they started to actually have an Ice Hotel that is... Um, year-round, so they've built a consistent ice hotel, wow. which you also have an ice bar in Stockholm, and I've always tried to avoid to go there because you hear the cooling systems cooling the ice in order to maintain mm -hmm. it, so you hear the machinery that keeps it alive. But what's also interesting about this whole experience of working with a material that that is organic, that melts in itself, especially with body heat and with sun. Sun is the biggest enemy, by the way. Um, it's, it's the fact that it, it just responds differently to heat, to, to yeah, I mean, so basically when you, when you come as a guest, there is, there's the room that's built out of these vaulted ceilings. Mm -hmm. um, you have pretty much three materials. You have snow, you have ice, and then you have a wooden frame that holds a mattress that is then holding sheep, uh, sorry, uh, reindeer skins. And these skins are not so much isolating for the human body against the cold. It's the other way around. It's the ice gets insulated against the body heat so that it lasts longer. So it's kind of like this interesting inverted value system over what you want to protect. And you reached out to them to to propose what? When I worked on this whiteness project and I wanted to realize this white experience, I reached out to Arne Berg and Isotel proposing a project to, um, to realize the white experience in one of their rooms. Okay. Nowadays, since then, they have established a competition that is annual. So every year, 400 plus people apply to create a room of different themes and they select about 10 artists who are usually a combination of artist and architect uh, coming together and realizing a room for this annual expression or celebration of and you started it no i didn't start i i just was one of the earlier participants of that and my room was considered the white room at the same time there were incredible artists like uh Jörn Kaupi from Finland, who created this ice floor, and he and our two projects were very zen-like. the uh, The white room that I created was truly a white experience because it was 
It had no edges. It was an exploration over what happens when one of the main parameters of space reading the horizon is absent. And that was created through having smoothened edges, having rounded curves and corners. There was no, the, the only reference to which space and observation of space was pretty much gravity. The moment you lay down, you still had gravity, but otherwise there was no indication of how deep is that space. The depth of field got lost, you had a whiteout. And that was achieved through the very homogeneous finished surface of the white. There was no particle that was, I mean, over three and a half weeks sanding that surface. There was such a fine quality to the whiteness that it was just so smooth that you didn't know you would you would take your hand and you didn't know was the wall 10 centimeters away from you or a meter away from you didn't know you just had to explore it and the only aspect that gave you a definition of space was then the singular light source that was located at the head end of the bed and that amplified what the space was it was an arch and it amplified it through the singular arch and a lot of people didn't know was that actually implemented. Mm -hmm. Nowadays you would think, oh, maybe that's a linear integration of an LED strip. But LED was very new at that time. wasn't really out on the market. Didn't have the quality. Market probably. ready, yeah. yeah. And so it had been a fluorescent, a singular fluorescent. Well, it's a g it has been a great source of light yeah. if used and, yes. and, uh, yeah. and focused or used right. in a good way. Yeah. So, so, but what brought me to light was that being surrounded in this mass of snow, there was no daylight source. So you had to bring in some kind of electrical light for making your way and creating a nighttime experience. And I wasn't quite sure of how to create the correct light condition for the room and somewhat the very pragmatic approach of introducing this one source of light actually created this really beautifully poetic spatial definition of the arch. And I would say back then it was probably more lucky <laughs> that it occurred to be this, but it really inspired me to learn more about light and what you can do with it and in order to not just trust your lucky moment to help you out the next time around, but actually be much more thoughtful about it yeah. to really know where where this could lead. Uh, maybe I'm doing you maybe good, maybe not good here, but uh, the way how you explained the experience in the space and again, sort of the your story and the connection to the desert, but also to ice, also like that there's no horizon and mm. that gravity is the only sort of constant to make a judgment in a space. Have you ever met James Turrell? Yes. Uh, well, yes, actually I did uh, in person, um, but also visited multiple of his incredible installations over the years. Um, yeah, in fact, so when I was approaching my final thesis project, there was this really interesting symposium in Finland, uh, which was the Alto Symposium. I can highly recommend it to anyone who is, who is seeking a good discourse. Uh, it's usually an event that happens every three years, I believe. Um, 
back then in 2003, it was an event that was called Elephant and Butterfly. It Beautiful. was it was this theme of how the butterfly wing kind of can create a tornado and the elephant has this exceptional brain of kind of collecting memories and memories and memories and kind of holding on to this. And it's basically this juxtaposition of these two extremes that have very interesting qualities to them. Um, one of the speakers was Rick Joy. One of the other speakers was James Turrell, which is interesting, both of them practicing in the Southwest. And um, so James Turrell had come, had spoken about his incredible projects and works and being inspired by flight, actually. Him being extremely inspired by being in the cockpit and kind of basically having this broad view um, and yeah, and I don't want to. I don't want to make this uh, about James Terrell. Um, he will come up in an, in, a, in a different episode. Mm -hmm. Fingers crossed. Um, but it seems like that these are. It seems these are like this is a way of creating or observing or designing experiences that seems to be like sort of the highest level where your inspiration and your work in the combination of nature and observe, uh, observing the emotions. And I really loved your expression just now, collecting emotions or m memories, emotions, mm -hmm. storing these is so such an important part of sort of the work of a good lighting designer. Mm -hmm. um, let us still stick to sort of your, your timeline a little bit. So you went then to KTH mm -hmm. and... Maybe I'm digging a little bit here, but anything that sort of stuck to your mind at KTH where you thought, okay, yeah. this is an important, also an important step? Huge step, yeah. Um, KTH was, was an incredible opportunity, maybe gift. I don't really know how to articulate it fully, but what was really phenomenal is this approach you know, you have different schools of lighting, I think. In, in Austria, you have Bartenbach, highly technical, incredibly precise, mm -hmm. uh, mathematically super articulate engineering. You have the Italian school that's much more object-oriented, creating these beautiful products, very, very fine articulate. Sweden and KTH has a focus that is really I think becoming more and more up to date nowadays because it has this holistic thinking about lighting. It's like it's it's so ingrained in the Scandinavian culture, the importance of light on a daily basis. The average person has an attitude towards it, and the general attitude is lighting has to be qualitative first of all, and has to be beautiful second of all, and useful third of all. And so with that. Just living in the Scandinavian context is hugely influential. You live the absolute presence of light during summertime and then the absence of light during wintertime, and you feel personally on a physical level of what it does to you. Yeah. Um, KTH as an education has this beautiful approach of trying to gear you towards holistic thinking, where lighting is not just technical, electrical, it is, and, and then 
also a product and how you apply it, but it is about the holistic way of thinking, what it does to you psychologically, emotionally, and physically, and, and how it impacts you on, on a daily basis. Yeah. So that, I think, was, was very, very, very influential. And, uh, and I think not every education in the field of lighting gives you that outlook towards it. Yeah. And then from sort of KTH moving further, you started working... Yes, I, st I started working with uh, Niklas Oedman and Kai Pipo back then uh, being partners in user architecture, which was one of the um, most exciting places you could go work for. <laughs> and, um, and Kai and Niklas had also been connected to the school and very present in in the scene in Stockholm. And so having learned through KTH, it was more like scratching the surface. It, it felt like, I don't know anything about lighting still. I need to start working in that environment to really get a better idea of what it means to work in the field or to work with the medium. And so I applied, um, I, I was invited to become member of the team. Back then there were five um, with colleagues Eva Persson and, and Clara Frankel. And then um, during the time that I'd been there, I'd been given these amazing opportunities, had worked on incredible projects that both Niklas and Kai had entrusted me with managing. And so I could grow into this responsibility with their leadership and guidance, and especially Kai being this unbelievable source of inspiration and and never-ending well of ideas. And so it was this beautiful collaboration over years. Um, now I've become very good friends. And I, I keep saying that on a, on a side note, he's also a good matchmaker because I'm, through Kai I met my husband, so. <laughs> Which you probably know, but <laughs> yeah. yeah. Fantastic. Yeah, so this this was so, I had the opportunity to work on some projects in the Southwest, among others, or one of the first projects that I was actually working on was a project uh, called the Villa of Nine Courts in Dubai with Marwan Al-Sayed. That then led to a project um, in the desert that is Amangiri, for which uh, Kai was invited to become, or user architecture was invited to become the lighting designer on that project. And um, and then from that, we were invited to work on a chapel in Austin and, and big residential projects in Taos. So that led to some work in the Southwest. And with it came um, me meeting my now husband. So That also brought you closer to the desert or? Yes, it, it pretty much meant for me to move to the desert <laughs> eventually. But yeah, that's kind it of... It sounds like an amazing, like journey and I don't want to say friction but like a like a current between like the desert and like a f flat open land towards like mountains of like mid of Europe and yeah quite snow, quite quite ice, different snow ice wind sand heat everything in the yeah. same yeah so the desert which now is home is different in every regard it's um it's very far west it's feels a little bit wild west still um it's 
is incredible. If anyone ever has the chance to be in that land, come see it. The light is stunning. The climate is overwhelming. I mean, the light too is it's extremely glary. Um, it's incredibly intense. It's so much about survival. It's so much about the intensity, like the overwhelming intensity that you need to get resilient with and the landscape responds to that and anyone who has visited the, the southwest desert i mean i don't know anyone who is not absolutely enamored with it it's just such an incredible expression of resilience and beauty and it has some people say there are no seasons some people say there are 12 seasons because after every rain mm. a new growing it circle changes, occurs yeah. and with it there is a subtlety of shifting colors and hues. I mean, you know, you come from the, from Central Europe or even Scandinavia and you talk about green, you talk about the most lush, like saturated, deep green that you can think of. Like that's the association with green. You talk about green in the desert and it's everything from the subtlest hue of right. sage mm -hmm. to, I don't know, it's like these subtle hues that are very very faded by the sun and just like very bleached but it's it has a really beautiful yeah attuneness mm -hmm. with the environment with the heat with the sun and then it gets juxtaposed in spring with the most intense colors like Pow. yellow and magenta and kind of like this the, the new growth of green is apple granny smith that kind of like super bright, uh, amazing. So it, it's it's all of it, and it's the intensity of it, and the the need to respond to it. You can't. Just, there's no. Um, how should I call it? You, you 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 feel very humbled by being in the desert because. You're definitely put into place, whereas if you live in another environment or even in Central Europe where the culture is so influential and everything, you feel much more maybe maybe in control. Mm -hmm. I, I don't really yeah. know how to articulate it, but Absolutely. you are in the Southwest. You definitely feel humbled <laughs> by nature and the environment and by everything that comes with it. And so... I think that gives you an, an amazing like sort of background or knowledge of quality that probably flows into your into your work having all these sort of subtleness and differences between like nature because this is how we basically learn to see and i think it gives you probably a super rich quality in your projects i would like to connect now sort of two dots number one is sort of the different values or how you position your product of service on the market and mm -hmm. how it is perceived and how you sort of then started your own business. Mm -hmm. And I maybe start with the question of, yes, there are, you can either sell your service more towards the quantity in terms of numbers you can count mm -hmm. called sort of the function and the engineering service, but greater quality of course coming from like a lighting designer or like a designer artist uh, someone who's more interested assuming in like the experience like numbers don't communicate a feeling 
Right. So how do you how do you how do you approach this in your in your business and how do you how mm. yeah how that, how do you that, make it happen? That's a good question. Um, and it's I think it's not a straightforward answer. I think it's a combination of multiple things. So first of all, I should say coming from the European side of things and having worked in the Swedish environment it's very very different to work in Scandinavia to than working in the US and um, requirements and demands are very different too um, so how to bring an, an experience to the project it's sometimes not always the first conversation we can have because we will be approached mostly for having a specialty knowledge on electrical lighting. We usually get invited to the project through team partners, clients, or architects who know that we have an expertise, but at the same time who have their own affinity towards lighting and know that they, they, they have big value and big appreciation for it but they don't quite they need help to realize that vision so we we come in as helping to realize that vision and we come in with our technical understanding expertise of trying to articulate it also trying to educate them along the way and then in the process of working through these things we can tackle other conversations like experience can question specific approaches or how we could maybe fine-tune things so as much as I would like to have the conversation start with the experience, it's, it's usually starting with, hey, we need to tackle these light levels, we need to tackle mm -hmm. this budget, we need to tackle these technical requirements. Or sometimes they don't even know. They say, like, hey, we have this, this given, we have this idea of creating a lantern. Can you help us? We need to be done then right. and then. And so you, you basically have all these other parameters just that defined a brief in the project and through the collaboration over time and revisiting new projects with the same partners, their relationship advances and there's more understanding of where the conversation can go if you have an intricate yeah. exchange. And so that's kind of probably where we where we Because so really far yeah. it, it <laughs> seems like that we and I'm we as lighting designers we our sort of work gets mm, let's say appreciated by people who have an understanding of the value of light already mm. how do you create new business I would say if if we are invited to the project we enter the conversation from the lighting point of view but it it really ends there because if we enter the conversation correctly, and, and usually in, in at CLL, at the studio, we start every project by understanding the site situation, the climate, the environmental conditions, including you know cloud covers, daylight conditions. We, do, we start with a daylight analysis. Yeah. We start with that because it gives us an understanding of how daylight engages with the space. Now, what also happens, we then do share these findings with the architect or our project partner, and through that we gear shifting fenestrations. We tell maybe this would be smart to rotate it in a different way so you have less heat gain. So our conversation, yeah. even though it's 
geared on looking at what the lighting does, it affects spatial outline, architecture and space making, and then we respond to it with electrical lighting suggestions, mostly in order to balance daylighting, because at nighttime you don't need a lot of light, or we would push for keep it semi-dark, because mm -hmm. that's the better environment to live in, to calm down, to be more intimate, to create a more soothing environment, but then it's mostly, especially in the desert, or what you learn in the desert, it's, it's balancing the daylight, the intense daylight that is the biggest aspect, meaning sometimes shading, sometimes introducing additional electrical lighting. It can go either way. So how do we create business from that? It's creating trust with our partners who then usually really i mean luckily it has been this way i don't really know but um we have repeat project partners and clients and through word of mouth we get more of those relationships that keep coming which is really beautiful and we like to keep it that way and like to grow business that way slowly but consistently and we like to be we love to be invited to the project early on because it allows us to really have an a much more integral solution for what lighting does through the space, throughout the year, throughout the seasons. It's exactly the way, right? That we have to just step by step, just do good work and communicate as much and as good as possible in order then to sort of... I mean, I, th I think, and then I also think, you know, sometimes it is definitely luck. Sometimes it is happening to be so that you stumble into an opportunity of helping someone work with something and through that the collaboration starts to become something really beautiful and I believe that in one of your recent interviews uh, Howard Branston was, was uh, referred to as being one of his really big inspirations in lighting design especially here in New York and he would always say of how you do good work and the work stands for itself and people will become curious. I remember when um, when I started out um, with my own business, it was by accident that two of the previous project that I had worked on kind of on the side over the years had become record houses. And an architect saw this and was like, I love this lighting design. It's so minimal, it's so unusual, it's non-expressive in itself. I wonder who did that. And it happened so that both projects were in the same issue of the magazine. Both, pro both projects were record houses. And he reached out and it has become a huge project partner since. Since so. 2013, you have, so we mentioned, we touched on once or twice yeah. already on CL, Concept Lighting Lab. Mm -hmm. How did this come about? Um, so, uh, that's a good question too. Um, so, being trained in architecture and architectural lighting design gave me that opportunity to work in both fields. And I had worked in both fields since graduating from school, since having worked with Kai and Niklas in Sweden. And so when I moved to the U.S., I worked with Design Build Collaborative at first and then Richter Architects. And through the work with Richter Architects, projects had become bigger and bigger and bigger. And, and I side projects I would be very selective with. I would usually work with 
uh, former colleagues or, or people I used to work with who asked me to help them on a residence here or a project there where mm -hmm. they ask for some support. But I wouldn't, I would really be very focused on working within the studio environment and really give it all. And then the work in the studio became so expansive that it made sense to take the lighting portion out of the architecture and create its own business, mm -hmm. which became CLL Concept Lighting Lab and which now allows us, because we are our own entity, to work with multiple architects, designers. Yeah. And so we've worked, yeah, we've worked with architects in MW Works in Washington State. We've, we've worked with Lake Flato in Texas. We've worked with Faulkner Architects, mm -hmm. California, multiple times and repeat clients of ours. But we also still work closely with a Studio Rick Joy, Sebastian Mariscal, uh, Studio and other studios. So it, it allows us to really collaborate in multiple ways and multiple, with different attitudes, different archi architectures. And so it's really quite an interesting mind bend and stretch because every every studio has their different approach and so yeah i think all the all the great sort of experiences you collected seem to be now sort of reflected in this powerhouse of lighting design office we have here and i'm coming closer to the end mm -hmm. but we have sort of an audience today so one of your one of your team members um is is listening here across from us like as like an audience should be um <laughs> but also participating we talked a little bit about mentorship management how to grow people and in a in an in another interview you've mentioned you, you need to figure out as a human being at large to figure out what you want and then mm -hmm. sort of learn what this is mm. is this something you can you can talk about a little bit more because this is of course also connected to lighting but as we work a lot of business owners are listening mm. managing people and mm. as a resource is something super challenging because lighting mm. is maybe so emotional mm. how do you instill self-awareness in in people so so Maybe one, one thing I'd like to say, because recently there were some really interesting conversations through the certified lighting designer and women in lighting design, like some initiatives that are really quite beautiful. There were some, some interesting questions and a lot of conversation nowadays goes toward work-life balance and, and other goals in living a good life and being being invested and stimulated by what you do on a daily basis so that you you live happily and well. Yeah. But then I would say nothing comes easy when you especially when you run your own business. It's 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 sometimes very hard <laughs> and it's sometimes challenging and it's sometimes a bit demoralizing. So probably the biggest one of the biggest challenges is cre is is managing expectations not just client expectations but also people expectations your staff's expectation and so the way i try to encourage equal opportunity and equal pay and all these things and benefits and even though we are a small and young business we try to The, the goal is to do it well, and the, the goal is to do it well 
for everyone, so everyone can really be invested um, and can bring their best with them to, to the work, which then is the best that you can offer to the client and the project. But with it comes sometimes tough conversation. You know, Sometimes you need to be really, really clear, very straightforward, and sometimes unemotionally it is, um, it's a forward conversation you have to have. You have to be very forward and say like, hey, I gotta let you know in X amounts of weeks from now, I'm not sure I can guarantee you work because the project that you're specifically working on is fading out. I don't see a new project coming in, so I'm just letting you know now. Perhaps start looking out. So if you have, I don't know, four weeks, six weeks. So these are not easy moments, mm -hmm. but they are reality. And so I try to be very as open and transparent as I can be in the studio. Um, I try to, to not spread my own worries of running a business with, with my staff, but I try to be open and share the successful stories and sometimes the sadder stories. Mm -hmm. and, and I feel like the more open you can keep it, the more stewardship you allow and the more stake you allow everyone to have in the work, the more engaged they will be. And so I think maybe that is part of how to to allow the the team to grow with you. I think also you get further if you go together than if you go by yourself. But then, um, yeah, uh, I guess we, we touched on this a little bit earlier. It's because it was it was offered to me very early on. It's something that I've extremely appreciated through my own experiences. Uh, that I like to share this beautiful trust that had been given to me, and I like to put it forth to my team. And at the same time, you obviously have to have a finger on it because you are also responsible to deliver good work, and you're responsible to the project and the client, and so. You have to find the right balance. Not sure this is really the answer to your question, but <laughs> trying, trying to certainly, yeah, to give one of these responses. And then um, coming back to this thing about work-life balance that I hear a lot, I, I, I think it takes a lot of work. You have to be willing to to be invested and to be committed in order to make something work. And sometimes it's it takes a lot of energy. And that's not always coming easy. Mm -hmm. But if you're passionate about it, it should be also inspiring and, and um, elevating. And then um, coming back to this initial quote that you brought up in that question of figure out or learn what you want or figure out what you want and learn how to ask for it. What I mean by that is not so much asking for that something would be given to you on a platter. That's not what I mean at all. What I mean is if you figure out that you have a dream and if you figure out that you're ready to go after something, go after it and never be shy to ask for help or mentorship or direction or there's so many people who are generously willing to share from their experience and all of it helps 
all of it is really, really exciting. And usually I would say the lighting design industry specifically is actually very, it's a young industry. We all are learning, it's constantly changing. You have to be open-minded. And I think through that general surrounding, people are actually quite, quite openly sharing. There might be an interesting opportunity as of very, very early on when, when CLL was just found, um, I was actually offered to be bought out. Oh, wow. Very early on. And I'm like, I was seriously considered it with every aspect of it. And I wasn't sure what to do. Mm -hmm. Obviously, I consulted with different people, among others with Kai, among others with my husband. And I got very different That's feedback. Mm -hmm. And um, now I feel like I'm lucky I, I thankfully declined. I've of course felt very flattered, but uh, I think it was the right choice, choice for me to, to stick to it. <laughs> believe in you and yeah. your right. and your company. What is advice for young designers starting out in the industry? Go for it. Just um, yeah, go work in the field. Try to. I mean. Try to have different experiences, but also don't just allow yourself to be in a place long enough to really immerse yourself in some projects, see them through, um, and just, yeah, work it. The more, the m if you're really int into wanting to excel in something, you really have to work through things. And that's sometimes, I mean, lighting especially, And, and working in the field, it's very dynamic. So the benefit of being exposed to different projects, multiple projects at the same time, is giving you an incredible exposure anyways, compared to architecture, which is a much longer process of, of seeing something through. Um, but I just think, get, get into it, like get your hands dirty, get active, do things sign up for, I don't know, a dance, dance or theater and play with it and then find, find the thing you're most passionate about. So I think these are beautiful words to, um, to end our conversation. Claudia, I really appreciate it. Um, well, I thanks think for taking the time. These were a lot of uh, amazing insights and uh, thank you so much. Well, thank you. <laughs> It's awesome to be here. Thanks. And that was the conversation I had with Claudia Couple Joy. And I hope you enjoyed this conversation as much as I did. So if you're curious, check out definitely her website, cll-conceptlightinglab.com. So I am very blown away by the experiences and the, the, the difference between ice and desert and heat. And I have not been to the desert, but I have definitely place it on my list to go to Tucson to visit the amazing desert because the environment is so important and so crucial that of course every project is unique and therefore every circumstance of day daylight should be considered. So thanks for sticking around and listening so far to this week's Light Lounge. As always, please say hi. Find me on Instagram Thomas underscore Mnich or LinkedIn Thomas Mnich. 
Well, what can I say? Thank you so much. I'm really grateful to be part of this amazing lighting design community. And uh, let me know if there is anything you are interested about, interested in listening about or a specific designer that I have had not on the show. I'm excited because there are more definitely amazing lighting designers coming. And uh, I can't wait. But so long. Stay lit. Stay lit.